0: This episode of Beyond Your Why is brought to you by our Y app. Head over to whyinstitute.com to take the Y app so you can discover your why today. Knowing your why is the essential first step in having the clarity to move forward faster and have a bigger impact. Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually helping you discover and then live your why. And so if you're a regular listener, you know that every week we talk about one of the nine whys, and then I bring on somebody that has that why. So if you have not yet discovered your why, go to whyinstitute.com and discover your why and then come back, because this will have much more meaning for you when you know your why. Now today, we are going to be talking about a very rare why. Why? Probably the most rare why, which is the why of mastery, to seek mastery. Now, people with this why seek deep amounts of information over sometimes a broad variety of topics. They will pick a specific subject and begin to learn about it, often for the sheer joy of curiosity and learning something new. They gather and retain substantial knowledge in different areas. Typically viewed as experts in their area, they will insist that they have yet to truly master it. They're fearless about new subjects or ideas. In a discussion with a person with this why, you might hear them say, wait, we need to think about this first. People with this why include artists, experts, masters, teachers, master craftsmen, theorists, programmers, and surgeons. Today, I've got a very fascinating guest for you. Her name is Elizabeth Buckley. Let me read you her bio. Elizabeth is a second-generation tapestry artist and teacher of over 50 years. Her work evolved from using techniques of the Mexican and Rio Grande traditions to those of French tapestry. She further honed her skills in France, and I'm gonna butcher this, but it's the Atelier of Giselle Brevet. She's gonna correct that for me. With her degree in art, Elizabeth brings to the classroom her deep grounding in design principles and color theory that specifically apply to tapestry. She draws from multiple tapestry traditions to provide her students the technique vocabulary for finding and expressing their own unique voice. Elizabeth's tapestries have a lengthy ex- exhibition history, including national and Canadian juried and invitational shows, as well as in museum exhibitions. Her work is in numerous private collections and was featured in the Fiber Art article on an artist's sense of place fall 2017 issue. Her publications include Fiber Arts Design Book, The Tapestry Handbook, Contemporary International Tapestry. In 2011, Elizabeth was awarded the American Tapestry Alliance Award for Excellence in Tapestry. Now for Elizabeth, tapestry weaving is a universal nonverbal language that transcends generations, cultures, and locale. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Gary, it's nice to be here.
0: Let's start by correcting me.
1: It's the atelier of Giselle Brivet, and I studied in Aubusson, France.
0: Man, I destroyed that. (laughs)
1: Well, you know.
0: (laughs) That is not my language, and thank you for correcting that. Well, let's start with the most obvious. How did you get involved with tapestry?
1: Well, I first learned to weave from my mother at the age of 10, hence why I'm second generation. And where was this?
0: Where did you grow up? I
1: grew up up in Kansas, a very small town in Kansas, and my mother had worked on her master's degree in art education. And as she was learning to do things, I was curious and willing to do them as well. Mm. She was going through the more traditional art program where you learn the painting, the drawing, the printmaking, and that sort of thing. And then she discovered weaving and textile arts and all of that arena. And basically, just uh, gravitated to that like um, a fish to water. She That was just her métier of expression. And as she was learning things, I was very young, and it looked really interesting to me. And I said, can I learn to do that too? And she just showed me things as she was learning them, and that's how I got started.
0: And so... Did you start originally in tapestry or in different disciplines and then move towards tapestry?
1: Uh, I think I started first with macrame, which is a knotting technique. It was really big in the 1960s. It was really quite the rage. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from there, learning the basics of weaving and then in weaving, then the tapestry is one form of weaving. Okay. Where um, the warp, which is the threads on the loom, and the weft, which are the threads that you weave with, it is what they call a weft faced form of weaving where the threads you weave with are the only threads you see. They cover up the warp entirely. And I found that to be one of the most fascinating aspects of weaving. Over the years I kept going back to tapestry. I explored other areas of weaving, but I kept going back to tapestry because that's what I really, really loved the
0: most. What does the word or maybe what does the word tapestry mean? Does it have a meaning?
1: How it in in the traditional sense, tapestry is a hand-woven technique with discontinuous wefts. In other words, the yarn that you weave with do not go all the way across the warp. They, they stop and they start to make different patterns and designs. Uh-huh.
0: And what about tapestry is so exciting, interesting, that you have dedicated 50 years to it?
1: Oh, gosh, it's um, a combination of things. One, it's a very old art form. It goes back several thousands of years. You know, They will excavate, have excavated tombs in Egypt that have tapestry in them. They, in the other part of the world, in the Inca and the pre-Inca cultures, the Huari cultures, that was um, their way of living. Everybody was expected to participate in weaving and weaving tapestry in some fashion or another, whether it was spinning the yarn, dyeing it, weaving it. It became their method of currency as well as their way of documenting and creating a language. And the whole idea of how old this is has just always fascinated and intrigued me And the fact that this exists everywhere in the world and many, many of the indigenous cultures around the world have developed their own system of weaving as one of the primary uh, ways of developing their culture. Mm. So it is uh, an old and very universal nonverbal language in that sense. It's a very visual language, but it's also a language of warp and weft Mm -hmm. and the designs in the warp and the weft.
0: So, why did that become so exciting to you?
1: I'm intrigued by things that are really, really old. Mm. My father, when I was a child, was quite fascinated with paleontology, and he would take our family on fossil hunting excavations in the Flint Hills of Kansas. Mm-hmm. And I learned it, I think, it was around nine or ten, how to read the layers in the limestone and the shale. And start doing shape identification of the invertebrate fossils, the gastropods, the crinoid stems, the trilobites, you know, those sorts of Mm -hmm. things. And the whole concept of geologic time being so much larger than the human lifetime, I had a really hard time trying to understand that then. And even now, it still blows my mind to think in terms of millions of years, uh, time being that long and that old.
0: So you just kind of
1: saw tapestry
0: saw that it was a universal language or a universal way of communicating or connecting, and it just intrigued you.
1: It really just intrigued me, grabbed my interest and grabbed my psyche, grabbed everything.
0: And then what did you do? How did you learn it to the level? What are the steps that you've gone through to learn tapestry?
1: Well, as, a, as I was growing up through my teen years, my mother basically set me up on a loom and let me showed me the essence of over and under and how to make basic shapes. And this let me start exploring on my own. Um, I wove without any kind of pre-planning. I just was letting the yarn talk to me and thinking about, okay, one shape leads to another. One row leads to another. Let's try this color next to that color, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like the beginning point. And then as I went into my 20s, I became a little more formalized in, in my searching and understanding of the basic techniques with the information that was available in the 60s, and there wasn't a whole lot documented. Um, Some of the Mexican tapestry techniques were documented. Some of the um, New New Mexico Rio Grande traditions were were a little bit documented. And so I had those books to begin with. Documented
0: means this is how you do it? Yes. Like instructions.
1: Diagrams and instructions. If you want to get rows that look like this this is what you do if you want to create angles this is what you do if you want to create curves this is what you do Mm -hmm. so it was a basic study of how to create essential shapes how to create shades within colors you know going from one color to another gradations those kinds of things Mm -hmm. from there i continued just weaving on my own trying to explore what it is I wanted to express in, in this very interesting language. And the more I dove into it, the more intrigued I got with it. And I got to a certain point where I was at this point still designing and creating as I wove. And I got to a point where I was, my designs got too complex for me to hold it all in my head basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I would spend more time staring at the loom than weaving because I was trying to figure out where I was going to go. Mm. And then I knew I needed to find a master to work with that would help me get some ideas down on paper in some fashion so that I would have a sense of being able to know where I was going to go next like mm-hmm. creating a, a roadmap of sorts. So, I started looking around and I saw um, the work of Jean-Pierre La Rochette and Yael Lurie, who were starting to teach workshops here in the United States, took a series of three workshops with them, this would have been in my thirties, and I took like one workshop a year. I go and do an intensive workshop, go home, weave, 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 weave mm-hmm. for a year, and then I go back and take another workshop say, so, okay, show me more, and they would show me more, and then I go home and weave. So it was a you know an incremental thing over a number of years.
0: So when you're talking about going home and weave, 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 what give us a sense for how much time are we talking about?
1: Well, tapestry is very time intensive. hmm Um to do areas, you know, the more detail you have in a small area, the more time it takes to weave it. So you're looking at several hours to weave maybe a half inch across maybe twelve or or 13 inches of, of, of warp.
0: You know. So how much would you put in per day? Or is it was it like a daily thing that you would do? I would
1: try to do it daily. I was also juggling a day job because, well, you know, an artist has to earn a living and you have to pay your bills. And, you know, it, usually the art does not pay. So I was, I was also juggling a day job and uh, then weaving. Usually I would weave in the mornings first thing, and get up, crack a dawn, weave for a couple hours, and then get ready to go to work and be out in the world best creative times are early in the morning
0: Mm -hmm. so if you how what would a weekend be like for you
1: oh weekends were great i would um then i'd have like two whole days i wouldn't weave solidly the whole day because after a walk you focus on something you just get really tired but i would definitely weave the entire morning if i got up at you know daylight and wove until about noon i was a happy camper
0: (laughs) okay so for those Uh, And I want to I want you to continue with your story, but I I think it would be great to give the audience, the listeners, a sense of what one of your tapestries is like, because if uh, you know how could describe, you know, your most your your most um, your favorite tapestry that you've created.
1: Well, I have several favorites, but my my favorite ones, I'll put it that way, usually have to do with the effects of transparency and creating layers uh, on top of layers. So, in other words, you're seeing through a veil, through something behind that, and do something behind that.
0: That's mind-boggling.
1: Um, and to be able to weave that, and you're keeping track of basically two or three layers simultaneously as you're weaving um so you have it requires a lot of focus and a lot of concentration to be able to pull that off and patience and not being in a rush because it's just it's not something you can rush so for those that are listening
0: how big are we talking is like the size of a wall or size of a a big poster or how Um, big are we talking
1: We're talking about one piece, which I call the Veils of Time, is 50 inches by 60 inches. And that took me a total of 23 months to complete. Wow. And that is from the design phase. It took a couple months to design it, getting the loom warped up and ready, getting the cartoon, which is the design you put under the warp so you can see the roadmap as it it will, Um, getting the colors selected and prepared out of the yarns, uh, and then all the weaving time. And then after it comes off the loom, the finishing and getting it ready to hang. So that's 23 months, basically, for all that entire process.
0: And so if you were to look at that from, a you know, say, 10 feet away, it looks like a picture almost, right?
1: Yeah, there, it's an imagery. So, yeah, it's, it's like a picture, but it's a woven picture. And it's um, what we would call a weaverly image versus just a copying a photograph.
0: Yeah, so for those of you that are listening again, you need to go to her, her website, Elizabeth Buckley com, and just take a look. So if you if you you know maybe stop this podcast for a second, go look at what we're talking about, and then come back and you'll hear more about how the heck she did those. Because I remember looking at them and thinking, there's no way that's tapestry. I mean, it looks like a super detailed picture versus being made with pieces of yarn. Mm-hmm. That just was mind-boggling to me. And and initially I go to, what the heck would it take to be able to make something like that? That's not like a weekend warrior that goes out there and creates something like that.
1: It's not something that happens fast. It's a totally different time in a very different sense. It, it relates to you know geologic time and, and really old time. Time that just goes beyond the nanosecond and what we're used to in, in our high tech days right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a totally different concept of time.
0: Okay, so back to your story. Now you're 30 years old. You've gone. You've taken the once a year the three the three, three courses.
1: Jean Pierre and Yaël Lurie, and then at the end of that time, Jean Pierre suggested that I go to Obisson. Uh, He says, "You really, you know, your next step is to go to Obusan. Look at all the old tapestries, because in that's in Obusan itself, it's a center of tapestry. It's had all aspects and components of making tapestry for six centuries, and it was recently—I can't remember which year—but within the last ten years, declared a world heritage tapestry, world heritage site by the UNESCO." And um, they've created a city de la tapisserie and they've created all kinds of things to help visitors come to the town, see the ateliers, see the process of making tapestry, see the process of the dyeing, the plants that are grown, the dyeing, the mills that created the fiber, the ateliers that weave the tapestries, and then the restoration studios. It's all in one area of France. It's really a delightful Delightful place to be
0: so tapestry started in France.
1: It did not begin in France. I think When they were tracing where the knowledge of weaving came from it probably came from North Africa Mm. and then um, As as people migrated around the mediterranean sea um, Some some of the weavers came up to the central part of France in in the Creuse district um, and to Aubusson, where they had the water they could raise the sheep. They could create the fibers, mm-hmm. you know, all the components uh, going into it. So it's been an Obasan since around 6700 700
0: AD. Oh, wow. So what did you learn there? You went there for how? You I went was
1: there. actually there for only a month. But a month. It felt like a lifetime. Okay. Um, where I was eat, sleep, live, breathe tapestry wow. uh, for a solid month. I was in the Atelier of Giselle Brevet. She herself was a fourth-generation master weaver. Mm. It was the women in her family. She grew up in Feliton, which is another area close to Aubusson, where they have another tapestry center. And it was in the women in her family that passed down the knowledge. And her husband, Henri Brivet, was teaching at that time the Aubusson School of Tapestry. He was teaching cartoon and, and tapestry design. So between the two of them, they would work collaboratively on their pieces she would do commission work and, and weave various things designed by painters and other artists. But she and Henri, her husband, would also create tapestries of scenes of Aubusson and things like that. Mm-hmm. So she was looking at... This was in the 1990s. And this is a time in, in in France when tapestry was dying as an art form. Okay, This is before UNESCO came along and declared it a, a heritage site. And... In French culture and in this whole weaving tradition, ateliers kept their competitive edge by keeping the knowledge uh, within the family. So it would get passed down generation upon generation with each, within each family. And by the time, in the 1980s, 1990s, there were families whose kids did not want to learn tapestry. It was like, that was totally passe, you know, why would I want to do this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. attitude. So, as ataliers, the master weavers, as they would die, their knowledge of techniques would also die out. And so this is what Giselle was and Henri Brivet were facing. And when um, I approached, and there are two others from the United States, that had taken workshops with Jean-Pierre La Rochette and Joel Lerie, and we approached. We wrote letters, we sent pictures of our work saying we would like to learn more. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, of the three of us from the United States, her daughter lived in France. So she went to Obusan with our information and knocked on atelier doors to wow. see who would be willing to take us on. And Giselle and Henri said yes. So that's how we came to do that.
0: And you got to spend a month there.
1: And I got to spend a month there.
0: And so when you left, you had new knowledge, new skills. Oh, what did you have? New
1: knowledge, new skills, a lot to integrate, to digest. When we weren't weaving, we were looking at tapestries, historical tapestries, contemporary tapestries. We were going to different museums. We were going to different ateliers. We were just trying to absorb everything we possibly could about tapestry.
0: So that what? Why did you go to this level? Why did you go to this depth in tapestry? You were already really good, right?
1: I was skilled but I wanted to I wanted to become even more polished. Okay. There were some things I did not know yet how to do. One was how do you weave water? Yeah. How do you weave forms that are really three-dimensional? How do you create illusory space on a two-dimensional plane? Mm-hmm. And that was really the direction I was wanting to get more information on in addition to more subtle and sophisticated shading techniques.
0: The nuances. Um,
1: Nuances, yes, the nuances.
0: That's one of the things that we talk about with people with the why of mastery is they love the nuances. They go so deep, but it's really those little subtle things that make all the difference.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely.
0: And they go, like you did, to the nth degree to get the... sometimes yeah. to their detriment right i mean so
1: well yeah you get really obsessed sometimes and just <laughs> absorbed in all this stuff yes
0: you said something really interesting you said that you got to the point where you almost couldn't weave because you got so focused on maybe the detail
1: well the idea yeah. you know i was trying to understand where i was going in the weaving this is back when I was trying to let the idea evolve and just kind of grow. Mm-hmm. It's what I call weaving from the gut. You just sit down at the loom and you start weaving. And I still do that periodically just because I enjoy that process. Yeah. But I needed to find a way to make a roadmap so I'd have a sense of where I was going to go. Gotcha. And understand then what kind of weaving I would be doing, what mm-hmm. kinds of decisions I would be making. It's like constant decision making and puzzle so- solving process. How am I going to get this effect using these techniques? Well, I could do this or I could do that. You know, it's those kinds of decisions.
0: And so once you finished with your month in France, Mm -hmm. came back and started to try to implement all this.
1: Yes. Yes. And
0: then take us a little bit farther.
1: So about a year after I came back from France, I had had woven, I think one major tapestry after coming back from France um, incorporating some of the knowledge, you know, working on what I learned from the masters and incorporating just bits of it into designs that were talking about things I felt needed to be expressed mm-hmm. in, in this way. And it came, I had the opportunity to teach, basically. Ah. And part of my mission is to help preserve the knowledge mm-hmm. that was passed on to me from Giselle Brivet so that it will be continued and not get lost. Mm. So part of my mission is to not only keep that knowledge alive in my own work, but to also pass that knowledge on to other tapestry weavers so that they can have a more deeper understanding of how to get different effects. And so this this knowledge will live.
0: Ah, so this is kind of dying a little bit.
1: Well, I think at this point in time, now we're in you know 2019, it's quite a ways from... The 1990s. There has been a resurgence in tapestry here in the United States. Great. Um, and uh, with the um, UNESCO declaration of Obisón being a heritage site, World Heritage Site, there's been renewed interest in revitalization there as well. So there's been new breath put into this this art form, mm. which I'm really happy to see happening.
0: So you now teach. You also do. So you. Create the tapestries.
1: I create the tapestries,
0: and then you teach courses to other people that I want do. to learn.
1: Yes, yes.
0: From all the experience that you've had. Yes. And and uh, what is that like teaching somebody?
1: Oh, I love it. You know, it's there's it's like I have a captive audience. People want to <laughs> learn what I love to do. It's like um, a win-win situation. People are really thirsting because they're they're struggling and they are they're frustrated because they can't get different effects and they want to know how to get different effects. I give them the tools to help them understand the theory behind why some of these techniques work visually and let them understand how the techniques work in a weaverly way and how you can synchronize design and technique to create what you need to create.
0: Mm. So if somebody were to say that they believe that you're a master at this, do you? how does that feel to you? Do you feel like you're a master in, in tapestry or...?
1: I think I'm getting in that mode, yes. (laughs) I mean, there's always more to learn in any field. There's always more to learn. But Mm -hmm. I feel like I have enough under my belt now to say, yes, I am a master, but a master who's always expanding and learning more.
0: Yeah, continuing your journey.
1: Continuing, yes. What does tapestry
0: represent to you? Is it a language? Is it an art form? Is it a currency? What is it to you?
1: It's probably primarily a language and an art form, the two merging together. What do you mean? Well, it's a little hard to separate out the woven language from the visual impact of it. Mm-hmm. And the woven language is the techniques, but it's also the imagery you create. So that's why I say they're, they're, the two go hand in hand.
0: Mm. What has been the most challenging thing for you to have been on this journey? Because you've invested your life to this. No, I've
1: invested my life to this. Um, The challenge is living in the day-to-day world that is totally oblivious to this art form. Mm -hmm. And the constant need to educate people, to help them understand that there's a lot more you can do with your hands and your fingers besides text message and and type on a keyboard. Mm. That there's a lot of skills that you can develop in your hands to create other ways of communicating, create forms of self expression, responding to the world in a very tactile way.
0: I can almost imagine it as like a therapy.
1: It can be like a therapy for people. Yeah. It can be.
0: Because you got to know yourself.
1: Yeah, you learn about yourself as you're working. I mean, any kind of nonverbal art has that potential of being a therapeutic way of expressing something that can't be expressed any other way.
0: Mm. How do you determine what you're going to create?
1: Oh, I always kind of joke with my students. I, say, I can always tell when an idea is starting to um, percolate for the next tapestry I start getting obsessed about <laughs> certain things. <laughs> uh, for one tapestry I did, I was getting obsessed by how the light reflects off of leaves. I live have an acechia, ditch near my studio in the South Valley here in Albuquerque and there are old hundred-year-old cottonwood trees that grow along that and of course I get to see the changing seasons with them and I just whenever the spring green starts happening when the leaves start coming out is that really bright yellow green kind of spring green or in the fall when they start turning golden yellow and the sunlight is on them and it's just a glow I was trying to figure out how do I capture the idea Of light on leaves and that was my very first kind of initial idea for a tapestry that I eventually wove called Dialogues Through the Veil where I was working with transparency and leaves falling and a waterfall of light and it was just um, an interesting process but ideas kind of start coming to me because I get obsessed about something Mm -hmm. I get intrigued by something something makes me really really curious. Uh, and then I start just focusing on where that will take me.
0: It makes me wonder if mastery is um, just a form of curiosity. Meaning hmm. people become a master because they are so stinking curious, like you just said. Well,
1: it is a form of curiosity. Yeah. But it's also a form of wanting to hone that skill to the ultimate finesse mm-hmm. as well
0: how have you figured out how to get out of your own way? Meaning?
1: Mm. (laughs) I understand that one really well. Everybody struggles with that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We have these conversations in my classes. I say, you know, we have this editor that lives in our head that says, you're not an artist. Who do you think you are? No, 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 no. All that stuff. And I said, you know, I and we all have it. I have it. And I just basically say, okay, that's your opinion. Now go listen to this music while I can get to work. You know, and i play some music in the background to kind of soothe that editor, to distract the editor so that I could kind of just get into the process, mm-hmm. of, uh, the creative process of
0: working. How do you get yourself out of the creative process and into the doing process?
1: Well, there's, you know, in the design phase, I am, I am doing and, and doing in a way that is very uh, intuitive, I guess is the best way to describe it. I will sketch, I will pull out my watercolors, I will try to get the idea that's brewing in my head in some kind of concrete form. And I will take the idea as far as I can for that day for two or three hours and then I know I need to go off and leave it because part of the creative process is to let things percolate and gestate. And then you go back to it with a fresh set of eyes the next day going, okay, in this area, I need to do this next. And you work on that. It's, it's a building process.
0: Uh-huh. And when are you done?
1: When am I done? That's a really good question. I get a design as far along as I can until I know I'm now ready for the loom. So I've completed the phase of, I've I've figured out as much as I can on paper. And now I need to hit the loom and start figuring out the rest of it with yarn. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's a question. The reason I ask that question Mm -hmm. is because one of the things that I see with people with the Y of Mastery is they have, I'll give you an example. This one gal who has the uh, the Y of Mastery, she and her husband got a new dog, a puppy. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to her, she says, oh, yeah, we got this new puppy, and we're, we're, we're wanting to train our dog. And I said, well, how's it going? And she says, well, I've, I've read six books, and I've watched three videos on how to train my dog. I said, great. How's the training going? And she said, well, I haven't started yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. That's six books and three videos already. Uh, when are you going to actually mm-hmm. start the training? Right. How have you figured out to get I beyond, start to start, yeah.
1: Um, I think it's because I work every day. It's a, di- a daily discipline. So that even though I don't think I'm going to do much, I will walk into the studio and give myself a minimum of half an hour to do something. And often it's just kind of the getting started is the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like uh, the artist with a blank canvas getting started because they're staring at this blank canvas. hmm How do you make that first mark? Well, for me, it's, you know, getting the idea down. Well, I have this idea. I'll start with this piece of the idea and see what I can do with that. Mm -hmm. And I go in every day and just keep working on this piece of an idea, not try to do the whole thing all at once, but just keep working on this little bit here, this little bit there. That gets me started and keeps me going with the flow. And after a while the design starts taking over and telling me what it needs next in a mm. really clear way. So once I get to that point, then the momentum is, is, is happening and I'm riding momentum.
0: At what point is it good enough?
1: Oh, gosh, is it ever good enough?
0: When That's is it good, good enough question. to go from the design to the work, to, okay. the, to the picking up the,
1: to the loom arm. and
0: going? How do you know?
1: When I cannot go any further with, with pencil, paper, whatever, you know, when I've gone as far as I can in paper, it's like, okay, and I don't know how I really describe that moment. I've got enough of a roadmap to begin, and then there's going to be areas in that roadmap that I will be figuring out at the loom, mm. and I've just learned to trust that process and to know that once I'm at the loom, I will figure something out.
0: Interesting, because that's a critical thing that I hear from other people with the why of mastery. And that's what I meant by getting out of your own way yes. is how do you move from the watching the six videos and three books mm-hmm. or six books and three videos to taking your dog outside and starting the training process? Right.
1: I think for, for some of my students, because they have a similar kind of question is they want to know how I know what I'm going to do, which techniques I'm going to use where. Yeah. They have the idea that somehow you have to show up at the loom knowing exactly what you're going to do everywhere, every piece, of it, every inch of it. Mm-hmm. And I say, I don't know when I sit down at the loom. I think understanding that you're not going to know everything in advance, but I know enough to get started. Mm-hmm. And I start in this area here.
0: So momentum, get your momentum yeah. going.
1: Just get started in an area you know how to begin. Mm-hmm. With, and you start there, and then the tapestry will start talking to you. The colors will start talking to you, all that sort of thing.
0: So let's explore that for just a minute. Okay. I hear that. I hear that comment, or that what you just said. Well, the tapestry starts talking to me. Yes. What is that like? What do what you mean? What is that like? What happens?
1: What happens? Well, again, it's a very nonverbal, intuitive kind of thing. I'll be weaving away on a shape and I'm thinking about, well, you know, I'm gonna to need to transition to a color pretty soon. Well, let's see, what do I do here? It's, it's kind of like this internal, okay, I'm thinking about it, okay, the next stage I'm gonna to need to add a color here, or I'm gonna to need to change the mixture of yarns here. And then I was like, okay, a time, oh, I need to do it now. Okay. You know, it's, it's like the tapestry tells me it's time to do it now, to make a change or do something a little bit different.
0: It's a conversation.
1: It's kind of like a dialogue. Yeah, mm. conversation. And it's usually, and also when the weaving gets really, really sluggish and I can't I can't see my way clear, I know I need to step away from it because something is wrong. Mm-hmm. So I will step away from it, go fix a cup of tea, go walk outside, come back and go, oh, I should have started that color half an inch ago. So I need to pull out a little bit or, you know, make an adjustment. But usually it's not too much I have to redo when I need to make that adjustment. So again, it's like when the paste starts getting sluggish, I know to pay attention. When it's going smoothly and and flowing well, then I know that there's that the idea is, is flowing like it needs to. It's a little hard to describe, but that's kind of, it's a dialogue. So is the... Does the tapestry, does it already
0: exist and you're just seeing it as you go along? Or is it, for example, one of my mentors once said, everything that's ever been here or going to be here or being invented is already here. It just takes someone to get emotionally involved with it to be able to see it, Mm -hmm. for their antenna to go up, for them to be able to see it so they can put it down in a different form Uh so the rest of us can enjoy it, like a song. Mm
1: -hmm. song is
0: already there. Someone just has to be able to be emotionally involved with it to to be able to hear it, Mm
1: -hmm. and then they can
0: write the notes, and then we can all enjoy it. Do you believe that your tapestry that you're creating was already there, you just had to be able to see it, or is it something that's just being created uh, as you go?
1: I think it's primarily all the elements are in the ether, mm-hmm. all the components are in the ether, and it's a matter of finding them and seeing them. So there's a visionary piece of it, and it's a piece of knowing what needs to flow through me into the yarns, mm-hmm. um, and trying to stay out of the way of whatever energy is flowing through my hands. Great um, way to say it. Yeah.
0: What's the future of tapestry?
1: Well, I think it's pretty bright actually. Is it? Yeah. Good. Yeah, there are increasing numbers of people interested in learning to weave tapestry, and there's more and more resources out there and information out there. I'm in the process of working on a book to document what I've learned. Tapestry Great. has been such a non written oral tradition that getting things documented in diagrams and in words and videos and that sort of stuff um, is really a piece of keeping that knowledge alive
0: so would somebody do you get like commissioned to do a piece or how does it work somebody's listening to this and they say i really need to get a hold of elizabeth i would love to either buy one of her pieces or have her create something for me how does that work
1: it varies from client to client I had one client who um, had a really special conversation with her daughter, working uh, walking in the Sandia foothills. Oh, this must have been like 15 years ago, maybe. Um, it was winter time; we had a nice amount of snow, and the sunset was doing its beautiful watermelon colors on the on the Sandias. And she wanted me to capture that moment in tapestry. So she gave me a bunch of pictures, most of them black and white, saying, this is this is kind of what the scenario looked like, but I want the feel of the sunset glow of the colors. I really want that warm glow in this tapestry. And so I went from her black and white to working up some a couple of different palettes. And oh, I remember once I had some maroon and she said, I hate maroon, can we do something besides maroon? I said, sure becomes a lot of collaboration, basically, between what my client will want and what um, I as an artist will, will produce. Uh, so that was that instant. Um, and other people will say, you know, the, here's the room, and show me the picture of the room or if I'm in town, uh, take me into the house saying, I want the feel of this, this, and this, but otherwise, it's all yours to, to create. You know, and basically, as long as I keep conversing with my clients, mm-hmm. keep them engaged in the process, so we're kind of all on the same page. Mm. So uh, it is communication. It is really communication at a time in a form of collaboration, really. Mm. Yeah.
0: And so, do um, so people can get a hold of you. How do they get? A, what's the best way to get a hold uh, of you? Via
1: yeah, my website, my email address. Uh, Elis- what's your email? Elizabeth at ElizabethBuckleyTapestryArtist dot com.
0: Excellent. So they can connect with you. They can say, here, this is what I'm thinking. I'd love to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those of you that are listening, if you just go to her website, I think you'll be pretty blown away by what's possible with tapestry because I never, I I mean, I never knew that was possible. And I feel like we have a a gem here in Albuquerque that people don't even know. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know, they don't know enough about this. I don't think for you to get the credit that you deserve for all the time and energy you've put into this. I mean, it's pretty mind-boggling. Fifty years you've
1: been doing this? Fifty years, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's dedication.
1: It is dedication.
0: And so uh, for those, again, that are listening, uh, take a look at it, get a hold of her. And, and, you know, I just appreciate you being here and coming in and and spending some time with me. I love hearing about the why of mastery because you do things that I couldn't even fathom doing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been my pleasure. I always love to talk about what I love to do, so.
0: Well thanks for being here.
1: Okay.